Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, David Field, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John are going to discuss the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1. As always, you can find links to our work in the show notes, including a recent article by Peter Lightheart on the coronavirus. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over this text, and here is our discussion of the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today surrounded by citizens of the United Kingdom. Uh, we have Alistair Roberts, uh, James B. John, uh, who have been regulars during our recent series on genealogies, and then really happy to have an additional guest, David Field. Uh, David is an old friend, uh, and he's here in Birmingham. Uh, he's been teaching an intensive course at Theopolis called Paths to Human Maturity, and he's uh, about to leave uh, to go back to England later today, but uh, was able to sit in. He's threatened to say nothing throughout the course of the next half hour, 45 minutes as we discuss this passage, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we can provoke him into making some comments about the passage, but we're really glad to have David with us this morning. Our series right now, as I mentioned, is a series on the genealogies of the Bible, often neglected or superficially studied passages. They're the kind of passages that we tend to skim over instead of engaging with in depth. So we've wanted to call attention to these passages and think about their importance in the history of Scripture, but not just the history of Scripture, but to understand their importance uh, as uh, features of the teaching of Scripture, God's revelation of Himself, of His faithfulness, and as part of biblical theology. So we've We've spent time looking at the genealogies in the book of Genesis, the genealogy in Exodus 6, which is leading up to Moses and Aaron. The last few weeks, we've been looking at the genealogies in Chronicles. The first nine chapters of First Chronicles are devoted to mainly to genealogical information that's picking up on earlier genealogies and adding to them. And this week, we're going to start into the New Testament. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at, or in a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the genealogy in Luke 3. And then we want to spend some time at the end of the series thinking about genealogies in the life of the church and particularly think think through the implications of some of the things that Paul says about genealogies, especially in passages where he warns against obsession with genealogies. What's the re- rationale behind that? Uh, and just uh, think more about, uh, kind of sum up and think more about the what we've learned through our studies in the genealogies. So today we're in Matthew chapter one, uh, and let me just in, uh, set the set the scene for this opening section of Matthew. This is the beginning of Matthew's gospel, uh, and in my commentary on Matthew, I I argue that the the gospel of Matthew is a recapitulation of the entire history of the Old Testament with Jesus playing the role of different major Old Testament characters. He's a Moses character early on in the book. He's a wise teacher teaching about the kingdom, so he takes a Solomonic role. Late in the book, he takes on the role of a, of a prophet of doom, an apocalyptic prophet who's warning about the end of the temple. So the whole book is set up as, an, as Jesus recapitulating the history of Israel. And I think that that's marked for us at the beginning of the book by the presence of a genealogy, which I think by itself would, rem, would be reminiscent for uh, its original readers, reminiscent of the genealogies of Genesis or the opening genealogies of, of First Chronicles. We talked in the past few 
episodes about how the genealogies in First Chronicles also match up with the uh, with the Book of Genesis in the structure of Chronicles. But the other signal at the beginning of Matthew is the very phrase that begins the book. We have in my New American Standard Bible, I have the translations of the Book of the Genealogy of Jesus Christ, but the uh, Greek word is Genesis, so the Book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, which from what I've been able to tell in my work on Matthew. Uh, would be, that was the name that would have been given to the first book of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures at the time that Matthew was writing. That would have been, it had already been known in the Greek as a book of Genesis. So we're already in the very first phrase where there's a signal that we're beginning a new Genesis. There's an, a, a new creation coming into being and Jesus Christ is the heart of that. Uh, and that's setting us up for uh, the a book that I, as I said, is a recapitulation of the whole history of Israel, culminating, I think, with the Great Commission. I, I don't think that. It culminates with the Great Commission, but I think the Great Commission fits into that uh, that framework because the Great Commission is, is in some details and also in its uh, thrust, is a kind of recapitulation of the decree of Cyrus. Uh, the end of the Old Testament uh, is Cyrus sending the, the exiles back to build the temple. Uh, he is the one who's been given all authority on earth from the God of heaven. And now Jesus, as the new world emperor at the end of Genesis, is sending his disciples. They're not going back to the land, but they're going out to the nations. Uh, but it's he's like he's the new world emperor. He's sending his disciples out to build the Lord's house throughout the world. So uh, Matthew sets that whole frame, I think, showing Jesus as the recapitulation. And the genealogies fit into that as as a kind of gesture toward the book of Genesis right at the beginning of the gospel. And that verse concerning Cyrus's decree is the final verse of the book of Second Chronicles. So you mentioned the connection between this and the way that Chronicles begins with a set of genealogies. This also begins with genealogies and ends with the final words of the book of Second Chronicles, suggesting maybe it's a new book of Chronicles. Right. I've worked on Chronicles and on Matthew, and I thought somebody who uh, has more diligence than I needs to put the two books next to each other. Uh, I've suggested that both of them are recapitulations of uh, Old Testament history, but what I, I haven't done is set the two side by side and see if they fit. And yeah, uh, that's, I think that the, they fit at least at the end because you have the, the final words of Second Chronicles or Cyrus's decree matching up, I think, with the uh, Great Commission. One of the things we noted when we went through Genesis and Chronicles um, it's almost as if we planned it, isn't it? Um, is the, the writer likes to um, identify given rhythms or uh, periodicity in, in genealogies. So we have 10 generations from Adam to Noah uh, and 10 then from uh, Shem to Abraham. And in Ruth, the sequence from Perez to David is is signaled there as, as a tenfold sequence. So um, it... it seems very clear that Matthew is applying these same principles and working consistently with um, the Old Testament as scripture, but with a, a reinvention on it, he's working with the number 14 rather than the number 10. And any thoughts on the 14 and the, and the, and the total too, because you have three sets of 14 generations according to his, Matthew does the calculations for us in verse 17. Uh, so he's, he's calling attention to this, to this structure, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the deportation, 14 from the deportation to the time of Christ. Um, what, what, do you, what do you make of the 14 number? When I've thought about it before, there's been a number of things that have come to mind. 
first of all, 14 is a significant number elsewhere in scripture. We can think about two sevens within the book of Genesis. The 14 years from Ishmael's birth to Isaac's birth, 14 years serving for Rachel and Leah, seven years for each, um, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, um, those sorts of patterns already there in Genesis. Then there's perhaps a lunar cycle of waxing and waning. There's the um, waxing of the history of Israel up to David the king, and then the waning to the deportation, and now the waxing again to the new to the new David, and Christ comes as the fulfillment of that. Also, the fact that the gematria of David's name is fourteen, and David frames the genealogy. Right. So David David would be the the kind of the hinge of the whole structure because he's the he's the uh, high point of the first set of fourteen. His dynasty is the dynasty that's declining toward the deportation to Babylon, and then the final, uh, uh, ultimately ascending uh, set of 14 goes from the deportation of Babylon to uh, the one who uh, comes after David. So, yeah, and the, the numerical connection with David's name makes sense of that. So, David is the, David is the uh, I think, the key to the whole thing. The number 42 might have some significance as well. I mean, we were talking about how the generations, these are the generations, are introduced in Genesis. And that phrase in Hebrew, Ve'ele um, Toledot, is um, the first word has a gematrial value of 42, and the next uh, Toledot has a gematrial value of 420. So there might be some significance in sort of the number of 42 and the way in which it has a sort of climactic feel um one of the things people have unearthed in Qumran um are these large calendars where people arrange priestly courses and rotors in blocks and one of the ways in which they do it they have six blocks of of mm. seven um in actually the largest block of calendars they have they do it like that and interestingly those blocks aren't numbered from one to six but they're numbered from two to seven so the sort of the 42nd course has this climactic jubilee like um feel it's a seventh seven and um the word for jubilee yovel actually has a, a gematrial value of 42 so there seems to be these um significances in the background um as it happens just um this week I was looking going through Estex, it's just gone through Purim and looking at the Targum uh, Targumic version of Esther. And there Mordecai is set forth as the forty second generation from Abraham in a big long genealogy. So it, it seems very much like there there was this um uh, understanding of forty two as a significant number in, in Jewish thoughts. Yeah, uh, David uh, had a thought on the 42. Well, simply also, yeah. um, simply that uh, three and a half years or time times half a time or 42 weeks uh, seem to be periods of, of judgment and therefore the end of the 42 is can be the end of judgment, something of that sort. That's going back to uh, Elijah in the book of Revelation as well. Mm-hmm. Right, so that w- that would be a uh, in the middle of the. I mean, you could put it this way: in the middle of the week of history, uh, before you, you don't get to the full, you go, don't get the full seven days of history. You get to a, a, day, a three and a half, uh, and in the middle of that time, the Christ appears. Still on the numbers, it's slightly unfortunate <clears throat> that 
Matthew can't count. That's to say, uh, he tells us 14, 14, 14. But then if you do spend a minute and a half uh, counting the names, then there's 14 in the first section, 14 in the second, and 12 in the third, uh, meaning that in reality there are 40 uh, generations which are actually listed, and then Christ comes as the one after the 40. And again, therefore, some of the uh, biblical associations with 40, whether you've been um, wandering around uh, in the wilderness or, or other uh, 40s, generations, next generation and so on, might be in there along with the explicit 42. There's the bother to count 40. <laughs> yeah, definitely two different, two different sources being uh, clumsily combined here by Matthew. <laughs> Uh, he had this. He had this forty-two thing in mind, but he didn't. Uh, he missed it. So um, I didn't bother to count it, uh, <laughs> this time. But are you saying that is that because of the inclusiveness of certain lists? So you have twelve, uh, but it'd be fourteen if you included both the beginning and end, end of it. Is that the way it works, or is it just completely? Is fourteen completely wrong for the last one? Fourteen is completely wrong for the last one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think you you possibly get a clue as to how you should count it in verse 17. So given that it's 14 from Abraham to David and then from David to the deportation to Babylon, that repetition of David might suggest that you're meant to count David twice. Mm -hmm. So one way to do it would be Abraham to David is 14, David through to Josiah is 14, and then Jehoiachin through to Jesus is 14. So that, that could be one way of squaring the circle. The way it's set up in three sets of 14 also has this periodization effect on our reading of it. This isn't just a list of names one after another in sequence. There is an underlying pattern that's being played out and the key events, the characters that are mentioned and the key events are significant ones. Abraham is... Abraham and David are previously identified as the ones of whom Christ is the son. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. And so the, their place within the list is very important. And then the deportation to Babylon and the movement to Christ, there's a, a reversal of something of what Babylon means um, in Christ. Christ is going to bring his people out of exile and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Or at least that's in Luke 4. But that same principle is here. So I, I think that periodization effect presents it within a narrative framework and also presents the whole story of Matthew within this bird's eye view of the narrative of the Old Testament more generally. It helps us to situate this not just as something that's happening at some odd moment in time, maybe in a particular period as we might have the introduction to Ruth or something along those lines but this is at a particular juncture in history is happening after a period of set a, a series of set periods and it's come at the fullness of time this thing happens um, and it sets us up for the fulfillment of prophecy that is very much central to Matthew's Matthew's narrative, Christ is the one who fulfills the Old Testament and its stories. And he's the one who takes up that narrative into himself. 
I love what you said about the waxing and waning, uh, the 14 as lunar, because even if you do the, the very simple thing of the first section, uh, there is no king until the last name, David the king. The second section, they're all kings. And then the third section, there is no king until the last name, Jesus, who is called Christ. So waxing and waning of the king in yes. particular, right? No king, king, no king. What do we expect with the arrival of Jesus, King? One of the things I, I noticed in working on Matthew was the, well, we, we talked in past uh, episodes about the different directions that the genealogies take. And um, when we looked at Chronicles, we saw that most of the genealogies are going from father to son and on down through generations. But then in uh, chapter six of First Chronicles, where you have the genealogy of Levi, that gets reversed and you have a genealogy that goes from the singers and the Levites of David's time back to back to uh, back to Aaron or, or the Aaron, the priests go back to Aaron or all the way back to Levi in the case of the Levites, and in a sense you have a combination of those two methods. The first verse of Matthew gives a very a general overview of the genealogy. The genealogy is of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you're moving backward, and then it goes to Abraham, and then you go in reverse. You go from Abraham to David. And then to Jesus is the last name in the genealogy in verse 16. He's the Christ is mentioned again at the end of verse 17. So Jesus Christ is the first name in the text because of the reversal of the way the genealogy is working. He's the first name on the text, uh, but then he's also the culmination of the genealogy, which I took it as, uh, as having a theologic as having theological weight. Looking at the end of the genealogy, what we would naturally say is that Jesus Christ is the culmination of Israel's history. He's the, he's the ultimate fruit of Abraham. Uh, but Jesus' name appears at the beginning of the genealogy, and this is book of his Genesis, which suggests that in some sense, he's also the root. It's a kind of a genealogical way of saying what Jesus says in John's gospel, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, he's, he appears at the beginning of his own genealogy. He's the alpha and omega of Israel's history. Uh, both both the roots and also the the ultimate issue of Abraham and David. Just continuing on that thought of the wax and wane and the shape of Jesus's um, genealogy here, it seems that that has some relation possibly to the shape of Jesus's ministry. So soon after the promises given to Abraham, Matthew draws our attention to um, the exile into Egypt, insofar as he mentions Jacob, um, uh, sorry, Judah, uh, and his brothers. Um, and that's going to be worked out in chapter one. Jesus will soon be taken into uh, exile, as it were, in Egypt and um, will then return and there will be a rise in his popularity. And, and like David, he will be declared as God's chosen son. And um, I guess we could see sort of the other side of that, a, a decline um, in, in terms of Jesus's uh, descent into exile, in, into the exile of of death, ultimately, and of prison and, and the grave and so forth. If that's right, the final stretch would be have a, a resurrection yeah. sense in the same way that Jehoiachin's head is lifted up in mm -hmm. prison. We could think of the way in which God has raised up mm -hmm. Jesus. One of, one of the famous things about the genealogy, Matthew's genealogy, is the presence of several women, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. What do you all make of their presence in the genealogy? It's uh, clearly not necessary for them to be included. Uh, there are genealogies in the Bible that don't include women at all. So Matthew has some kind of agenda 
Matthew, the feminist, I guess, uh, wanting to give equal, but not equal time, but wanting, wanting to give the women some, uh, some space in his genealogy. Thoughts about that? Well, it doesn't seem to be the women so much as the particular women that stands out. We'd expect Sarah and Rebecca and, and Rachel, but those aren't the women that we actually find within or Rachel and Leo, but those aren't the women that we find within the list, um, which suggests that these women are being chosen for something more than just the fact that they're women. The fact that they're women, I think, is significant, but there's something about these women that they have in common that maybe these other women that would be at the center of Israel's story for the most part, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, and others. Um, and here, I think it's the fact that they're Gentiles, particularly. They're people who come in from outside. Tamar is um, presumably a Canaanite. Um, Ruth is a Moabitess. Rahab, a Canaanite as well, and of Jericho. And when Mary comes along, and we're first of all prepared for unusual additions to the story, we're also prepared for so much of what Matthew has within his narrative of the outsiders being brought in. This is an upending of the expected members of the kingdom. It's uh, fiddling with the typical story of election that Israel might have told itself. Um, and so I think it's already bracing us for those themes. And the fourth woman, the fourth woman, of course, is Bathsheba, who, from what we can tell, seems to be a Hebrew, but is married to Uriah the Hittite. So there, there's the the Gentile association is there even with, even with her. Yeah, I mean, she she may have been a a Hittite. In fact, I mean, in it's hard to tell, but at least in um, Nathan's parable to David, it sounds very much as if Uriah has grown up with um, Bathsheba. It, it sounds as if she's um, from, from his and so forth um but i mean go, going along sort of the other side of the coin of what you've said alistair like in inclusion is there but then i think exclusion is there as well and, and goes hand in hand with it so matthew in verse two bothers to mention that jacob was the father of judah uh, and his brothers and then in verse three he bothers to mention zerah and zerah's line is is a dead end we, we saw in 1 Chronicles when we went through it. It ends in Akar in uh, the business with Jericho. And so I think Matthew is, is not just interested in the inclusion of others and outsiders, but of the exclusion of people who might have thought they had a, a natural right. And that obviously becomes a, a theme in Matthew with people coming from the north, south and east and west into the kingdom ahead of native-born Israelites. I also wonder whether there are ways of looking at the Old Testament story itself and seeing associations between these characters. Reading Genesis chapter 38, I think we can already see some ways in which um, the Moabites and Ruth um, might be connected with the story of Judah and Tamar. And we see some of those threads coming together in the book of Ruth. Um, we also see ways that, for instance, Judah's wife is the daughter of Shua. And Bathsheba elsewhere in First Chronicles is called Bathsheba. Um, it seems as if there are already some affiliations or associations between these characters that are beneath the surface in the Old Testament. And maybe we're being invited to reflect further upon some other connections between them. You know, the common idea is that these are scandalous women and it's a, it's a sign of the mercy of God to have these 
women who are um, have some connected with some scandal or some hint of scandal that are then incorporated. I, I, I agree with Alistair. I think the, the accent really is more on the uh, Gentile associations because you, you have you have plenty of scandalous men. Manasseh is in the genealogy. You don't need the women to uh, to get scandal into the into the into the genealogy of Jesus. Um, what that the, the theological effect of that is that Jesus already embodies male, uh, a Jew and Gentile rather in himself, in his own, literally in his blood, as it were, not as it were, literally in his blood, uh, he has Gentile, uh, Gentile blood as well as Jewish blood. So he he embodies that new humanity uh, already. I think I think the the scandal part is I think probably an overtone at least of what's going on though. The, you have the, the Mary is named in verse 16 uh, at the end of the genealogy. So she's the fifth woman named. And then we find out that she's pregnant uh, without marriage. And Joseph initially at least thinks that it's a scandal and he wants to put her away quietly. Uh, so that I th- the, the link with, with Mary, the, the setup that's leading up to Mary, I think does have this overtone of, uh, uh, of scandal. And there is something to the, to the idea that um, these women are included as, Again, as the signs of God's generosity to uh, even to sinners, known sinners, and and uh, people with a, a shady past, as it were. Beyond the fact of scandal, these a number of the women are also women that go to some extremes to ensure that the line does not die out. Um, think about Ruth, or um, also. Rahab as the one who saves the spies, Tamar as the one to raise up seed for her dead husband and to restore the line of Judah, which is just falling down into death in chapter 38 of Genesis. It seems that they are some of the most active women in the Old Testament to really intervene in the situation and try and sort out this crisis in the, um, in the line of Judah. And that, I think, gives us an avenue into something more within this genealogy, that there are a number of points of crisis within the line. Um, and that's hinted by reference to things beyond um, beyond the explicit father-son relationship. So the reference to the brothers of Judah and the brothers of um, Jeconiah. In both of those cases, it's a group of people that descend into some sort of exile. Um, and then later on, you can you can think about Shealtiel and the judgment that was upon um, Jeconiah. In each of these cases, we have a point of crisis, and then at the very end, we have the crisis that Joseph faces. Um, and Joseph himself is a man that reminds us of crisis. He's the son of Jacob. Um, he's someone who dreams dreams and then brings. Um, his family into Egypt. So in all these ways, I think we're being prepared for a genealogy which has had a number of deaths and resurrections, where God has intervened a number of times to deliver them from death, and where there are crises, but also the sign of God being involved throughout. God is going to raise up this seed, even from Babylon or from Egypt or wherever they may find themselves. And the women are often the ones who are particularly involved at that point. Yeah, I think the brothers are, are significant. That's an interesting comment um, that you made, uh, Alistair. I think that's, I think that's true. The other, the other thing that uh, the brother references to brothers prepare us for is a uh, theme of brotherhood that runs throughout Matthew's gospel. And Jesus is uh, reorganizing 
family and forming a brotherhood among his disciples. By the time you get to Matthew 18, for example, you've got this these instructions about how to deal with an erring brother and uh, what happens when a brother refuses to repent and he becomes a like a Gentile and a tax collector. That is to say, he's no longer treated as a brother. But you have this you have this setup that's um, initiated here already in the in the genealogy. Uh, what do you think of the, the the rationale for starting with Abraham? Uh, we'll see in the next genealogy episode that um, Luke traces back Jesus all the way to Adam. Why does Matthew begin with Abraham instead of uh, Adam? I mean, you could say for the symmetry, it, it wouldn't work for the symmetry of his uh, numerology. But is there some other some other uh, import to that? And and th- just I guess thinking about the contrast between the two genealogies. Uh, what are the, what are they getting out differently by having their different starting points? Well, throughout Matthew's gospel, the question of um, sonship of Abraham, as in the other gospels, is a very important one. Who are the true sons of Abraham? Um, and the question of sitting at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is truly going to belong at that feast? Um, the way that God is the one who can raise up children for Abraham from the stones, um, that they shouldn't presume to say that they have Abraham as their father. And so the statement that Christ is the son of Abraham, um, I think, alerts us to, first of all, the fact that this will be a theme within the gospel, also to the nature of sonship of Abraham through election, not just some um, biological origin. And also maybe the fact that he's the son of Abraham, he's identified with Isaac, the one who comes, is given back from the dead, as it were. Yeah, and I think the the, the connection with the debate over what constitutes sonship to Abraham would link up with the, the brotherhood theme that I'm talking about. If Jesus is the seed of Abraham, then the family of Abraham is made up of those who are associated with Jesus. Uh, and that's, again, as you say, is redefining what sonship to Abraham means. Uh, well, one, one of the thoughts I had was the the difference in uh, scope of the two gospels. Uh, we at uh, uh, Jim Jordan taught us to think of the gospels organized by the, uh, by the sequence of priest, king, prophet, and then John's gospel presenting Jesus as the man who fulfills all of these offices and priest, king, prophet connected with a focus on uh, the mosaic order, a focus on Davidic kingship, and then, a focus on prophetic ministry and the wider scope of the oikumene, the, the inhabited world. So given Matthew's focus on Jesus as Israel and Jesus having these uh, Jewish roles, and especially early in the gospel, he's playing the role of Moses, tracing him back to the origin of Israel, that um, it fits, it's a, it's, it's a suitable genealogy. Luke is dealing with Jesus as the, you know, the, the introduction with, a decree from Caesar Augustus and other uh, references to the Roman Empire that put Jesus into this larger role. Uh, Jesus is a, is ministering within the whole of humanity, not just within Israel. So that uh, I thought maybe the the genealogies are designed in order to fit with those different the different scope of each gospel. And in relation to your earlier point about Christ playing out the story of Israel within his life in the Gospel of Matthew, Abraham pre pre-capitulates the story of Israel in his life and Christ recapitulates it. And there's a sort of fitting symmetry there. James, uh, any thoughts on any of the uh, 
the names here. You've given us some insight in past episodes uh, into the meanings of names and patterns of names. Um, in a word, no, <laughs> not not in particular. Yeah, no, you do have some. I guess everything. That's Sorry. right. Everything we've said about names, uh, we've already encountered these names, so maybe there's nothing more to say than we've already said. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Shield Heal. Um, so I, I suppose one of the interesting things about um, this, yeah, this guy Shield Heal is um, uh, is his connection with Jehoiachin's curse. So Jehoiachin is said it said to him by Jeremiah that he will be childless; he won't have a child. On the throne, and um, uh, the word described his to describe his childlessness, um, Ariri, uh, is actually only used of him and Abraham. So uh, in in scripture, so it looks like they're at the end of their line. But then, in one Chronicles three, we do know that Jehoiachin has um, a child who is Jealtiel. So there is this sort of unusual fact that. Jeremiah has decreed that Jehoiachin will be childless, but then on the other side of the exile, it, it, in 1 Chronicles, so this is not Matthew's uh, invention, in, in 1 Chronicles, Shaltiel is, is born to him. And I think one of the ways to think about that is I, I think probably adoption has taken place, that the Lord has given him leave to adopt Shaltiel into his line, and that has been... Um, part of God's forgiveness and, and removal of Jehoiachin's curse. Now, if that's the case, then Shealtiel would have two different genealogies. He would have a legal genealogy post-adoption into Jehoiachin's line, and he would have a biological genealogy. And that's exactly what we do, in fact, see in Matthew and Luke. So Shealtiel is traced back to David via two completely different um, ancestries in Luke and Matthew's respective Gospels. So that kind of fits together. And there's a hint of it, I think, in um, the book of Haggai as well. When Jehoiachin is initially cursed in Jeremiah 22, um, Jeremiah says to him, you you would be um, cursed um, even if you were the signet ring on my right hand. You know, I, I would still remove you. Um, but then in Haggai to Zerubbabel, it said, I, I will make you like a signet ring. Um, and so it, it seems like that reversal, that, that lifting of the curse is uh, present in the Old Testament and it's going to be brought out in in Matthew when uh, obviously ultimately in the crucifixion there is the, the bearing of the curse. But even in a, um, a more local way in chapter 1, Joseph will form a, a bond, sort of take um, Mary into his family tree and shield her from shame and, and from uh, public reproach. So there is this whole idea, I think, of ingrafting and then shielding from a curse. And that would make that uh, that bit of the genealogy another example of what Alistair was talking about with uh, the, the threatened genealogy, the threatened line that's then revived and in that case, it's the son that's adopted that is the one that saves or redeems from that curse. It's not the father that redeems the son, um, which very much, I think, fits into what Christ is doing with that line more generally. And 
maybe we should think about this in terms of a broader theology of incarnation. Christ doesn't just come in human flesh in some random body. Christ takes up the body of Israel as his own. Um, he enters into this particular history, takes up this particular line, and in doing so, he assumes all the history, all the weight, all the judgment that has fallen upon that line. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.